Welcome to RPG Storytime, the channel where we take stories generated out of role-playing games and narrate them in short, digestible segments. Today we continue Gangbusters, the 1920s game of mysteries, mobsters, and mayhem. The module is Murder and Harmony by Mark Akers. Private investigator Dylan Griebel has been hired to steal documents from a man named Will Feynman and return them to the affluent Betty Overton. Betty has just become a widow, and Dylan is more interested in how that came to be, and why she wants these papers so soon after her husband's untimely demise. Detective Griebel has teamed up with reporter A.J. True, who has gone to the law office of Richard Thorndike, attorney of the late husband. So as I understand it, Mr. Thorndike, there was a whole party there that night, A.J. said. Yes, in fact, we were all in the same room when it happened. What were you celebrating? Celebrating? It was a party. What were you celebrating? Nothing. It was an evening of cocktails. I guess when you've got it, flaunt it. It's a benefit of being an affluent gentleman, yes. Which paper do you say this is for? Lakefront City Herald. Isn't that the one Bill Wilson works for? He's my boss. Ah. Where was everybody standing when the lights went out? I thought you had come to question me about the Amalgamated Musicians Union. Yes, I guess I'm just so fascinated by the murder. The police are doing a thorough investigation. Yes, I'm sure they are. So about the union, Mr. Overton was the president? Yes, and under his leadership the union has seen unprecedented growth. Have you? Its membership grew to more than 7,500 members. Why, that's swell! So it must have been doing very well financially. Yeah, yes. A few musicians who left the union claimed that it was being run by the mob. Oh, Mr. Overton was many things, but I can assure you he was not a mobster. Well, and if he was, you would have known it because you work with his finances. <clears throat> yes, I do. Some claimed that hundreds of thousands of dollars went missing. Was there any truth to that? I do not discuss my client's finances, but I can assure you he did not work with mobsters. That's fine. So I know it's only been a day, but I understand that two individuals are already running to fill a seat. Mr. O'Hara... Michael O'Hara, yes. And one of the musicians, Frankie Sensoda. You look surprised. I was not aware of the challenger. You knew that he would be opposed. Eventually, yes. I did not know Frankie had already put his hat in the ring. When are the elections? Tuesday. Well, that's fast. We need leadership. Who do you think will do a better job? I try not to take sides. Sensoda has stated a disdain for the mob, and even accused Overton of being affiliated with them. That's right. I wonder if the police know that. You think he could have killed Overton? Well, who knows? Was he at the party? Well, no, but he... Someone could have sneaked in and done the deed. What did you see? Or hear when the murder took place? Like I said... I gave my statement to the police regarding the murder. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have a lot of paperwork to do regarding Mr. Overton's estate. Yes, of course. Velma's restaurant is about as standard a diner as one could have. A row of bar stools along the counter, a row of booths along the window, a few tables on one end and restrooms on the other. It's even complete with crusty-looking managers who serve coffee. I nurse mine while I wait my contact. Dougie McDougall slides into the seat across from me, a wide smile across his face as he sits his bag down beside him and his hat down on the table. 
He enjoys this clandestine business too much. I've told him to stop being so happy before, but he told me that that would be a sure way to get us caught. He's always happy. This is true. I couldn't stand him on the force. The problem is his degree of happiness. You're giddy, I say. Of course I'm giddy. I'm a happy guy, he says to me. Then to the waitress who appears out of nowhere, I'll have a coffee with extra sugar, darling. And you're going to eat? Don't know if I'm hungry yet. I'm having sliced beef. He's ordering something too. Fried chicken and rice. Extra spicy. He winks at the waitress. God, I hated working with Dougie. When the waitress is safely away, he pulls the folder out of his bag and hands them to me under the table. I take them and place them discreetly on my bench while I place some money on the table like it's a tip. His smile grows wider. If they ever sent him undercover, he'd be dead within a week. Soon after, Dougie takes his share of the money and leaves the rest as an actual tip. His info delivers. The statements of all the people who were at the Overton party along with a few photographs he... borrowed from the evidence room. There were 15 in addition to Overton. They were Richard Thorndike, his attorney, Betty Overton, his wife, Charles and Linda Overton, his son and daughter, Enrico Lombardi, his limo driver, Frankie Sansada, a musician, and his wife, a musician named Polly Bezuhov, and five house staff, including Mr. Gardner, the butler. Sadly, there was no gardener named Butler. I skimmed through each one. I start with my client, Betty Overton, her statement. I was talking with one of the ladies, I believe it was Mrs. Sensoda, when the lights went out. Naturally, it was impossible to see much of anything in the dark for a few seconds. Then there was a sound of a gunshot, followed by a crash. There was a great deal of screaming. I suppose I might have screamed myself. I don't remember. I do remember calling for Gardner and asking what had happened. Then the lights came back on, and there was Arthur in that terrible mess on the floor. Next was Charles Overton. I was sitting alone in the chair in the corner when the lights went out. I had been drinking quite a bit, and was rather preoccupied with my own thoughts, so I didn't notice much about what the guests were doing. There was a shot, then a lot of screaming. Somebody, it must have been old Gardner, went and fixed the lights. When they came on, I saw Dad with his head smeared all over the floor. That's it. Linda Overton's statements. I was standing by the love seat when the lights went out. You know the rest of what happened. I screamed when I heard the shot and the crash. I didn't know what was happening. I reached out and grabbed Enrico. Thank goodness he was there near me. Then when the lights came on and I saw poor Daddy, well, it was horrible, just horrible. Enrico Lombardi's statement. It's just like everyone else has said. The lights, they go down. Then the lights, they come up. And Linda's Daddy, he's dead on the floor. Shot close up, I think. I had just come into the room. That's when it all happened. Richard Thorndike's statements. I'm afraid I can't tell you much more than you already know. As everyone here can testify... We were all just talking and having some social drinks, then the lights went out. There was a shot, then the sound of someone falling, and when the lights came back on, we saw Arthur lying on the floor quite dead. The gun was beside him. I tried to suggest that no one move or touch anything, but that was hopeless. The ladies were quite hysterical by then, and there was a great deal of screaming and running about. I doubt that any of us could reconstruct our positions at the time the shot was fired. I myself was just out of the room getting a fresh drink. They're planning on arresting the driver! Dougie says between bites of his chicken that he's eating way too fast. Had access to the gun and a motive. Frankly, I'm surprised he was allowed in the party after he had just been fired. I don't say anything. It could be the kid. But there were too many other complications for the murder to be this simple. I continued. Gardner the butler statement. I had been serving drinks to the guests in the drawing room. I saw that we needed more ice and vermouth on the drink tray and had just turned around to go and get some when the lights went out. Almost immediately after that, there was a sound, like a gunshot, followed.
followed by screams from the ladies and a loud crash. I looked around, but could see nothing in the dark. Naturally, I decided the first logical thing to do was to restore the lights. I went into the study, lit a candle, and headed to the basement. There I found that the fuse box had been tampered with, as there were several fuses lying on the floor. I replaced those fuses and heard even louder screaming than before from upstairs. I rushed back upstairs to the drawing room, where I saw poor Master Arthur dead upon the floor. The experience was quite too much for me. I'm ashamed to say that I lost my head. I ran to the street for help in a state of near hysteria. I'm feeling much better now, thank you. There's a statement by someone named Frankie Sansora. I come to see Overton about some union business. He was having this shindig. So I figured this was as good a time as any. Overton was, well, never mind all that now. Anyhow, the lights went out and then there was a shot. Then the lights was on and he was dead, see? I don't remember where I was when it happened, excepting that I was here by the sofa with a bourbon. There are a few more on the list that don't seem quite as important. But Dougie interrupts me. Time's up, he said, reaching under the table and snapping. That's a sure way to get noticed, but I don't argue with him. I just stack the papers without order and slip them back to Dougie. But I keep one of the photographs and hope he doesn't notice. He doesn't. He's in too big a hurry to get back to the department and replace the evidence. So he leaves the check for me to pick up. I was still nursing my food. It's why I choose something that starts cold so it doesn't go bad while I'm pacing myself. Soon, almost on time, AJ slides into the booth next to me, bumping my thigh. You're supposed to sit on the other side, I say. Is that a fact? She asks. The waitress appears out of nowhere again. I swear she's hiding under the table until it's time to come out. AJ orders meatloaf and corn. I show the waitress the photograph of Perucchio, or his corpse anyway, and ask if she's ever seen him. The waitress recoils, but then looks closer with surprise. Yeah, he was in here earlier, she says. What time? Around 8 a.m., right when I started my shift. Where'd he sit, I ask. She hesitates to answer. I place 50 cents on the tip. She points at the next booth over, wipes her hands, and leaves. I return to my meal. How did your talk with Thorndike go? AJ tells me that she learned about the musicians' union and what little she learned about the murder. I interrupt her by raising my finger for her to hold that thought, and I scoot her out of the booth so I can stand up and go to the neighboring booth. A family is there, and I ask them to excuse me while I search the whole thing, checking between the cushions, feeling under the table, picking up the accoutrements. Nothing. They grumble at the intrusion, but I ignore them and return to my booth, on the opposite side facing AJ. She continues where she left off, telling me about her meeting with Thorndyke. She says something about him smoking like a chimney, and I raise my finger again, then get up and rush to the bathroom. I'm sure she thinks I had an emergency, and I return five minutes later. She frustratedly starts in on her story again, and I slam a key that's covered in gum down on the table. She stares at it, confused. That's a key, she says. That's right, I say. The key? Mm-hmm. How did you- Did you say something about smoking like a chimney? What? You said something about Thorndyke smoking like a chimney. Yeah. What kind of cigarette did he smoke? Now you want to hear what I have to say? What kind of cigarette? They were thin. The kind only pretentious rich people smoke. Like this? I pull out the cigarette butt from my pocket. Do you carry around evidence in your pocket? Jay asks. Was it like this one? I persist. She takes it, studies it, then says yes. I bang on the table again. Someone at the next table shushes me. Let's go get a drink at Little Augie's. My treat, I exclaim. Okay, she says. 
but maybe we shouldn't be so loud about it. That's okay, the mob owns this place too. We walked down the street and I explained the whole story to AJ. Thorndike killed Arthur Overton. He took the gun from the drawer in the study and walked into the drawing room where he shot his employer. He needed someone to turn off the lights, so he hired Perucchio to break into the basement and blow a fuse. But he didn't know the weasel. So he didn't count on the former safecracker to climb up to the bedroom and crack the safe, stealing Overton's valuables. And the notebook? AJ exclaims, catching on. I continue that the weasel probably tried to sell the notebook, but got whacked for trying to do so. By who? AJ asks. That's the question, I tell her. Whichever syndicate is trying the hardest to get their hands on the notebook is probably the one that wanted Overton dead. And this key likely goes to wherever it's being kept. That key is literally the key, AJ observes. That's right. So what's at Little Oggies? This is where a lot of the gangsters hang out. I want to listen in to some of the conversations and see if I can overhear anything. She stops me and says, I've got a better idea. My boss has been poking around asking about this notebook. He wants to do a story about it. Why don't I find out what he's learned while you take that to a locksmith and find out what it's a key to? I stand there staring at her. I'm not processing the plan, though that's what she thinks I'm doing. I'm trying to find the courage to say she's right and I was wrong. I finally just nod and say, I'll meet you at your office, and I head toward a locksmith I know. She heads to the Lakefront City Herald building. Everything downtown is close, so I just walk. It takes only a few minutes. When I show Bob what I've got, he shoots me an annoyed look. I promise to pay him double to deal with the sticky gum. He takes it into another room. He comes back out a few minutes later with it cleaned off. This is a key to a locker at the train station, he says. How do you figure that, I ask. Because it says that it's a key to a locker at the train station. See? Written right on the handle. Locker number 137. I stare at it the way I stared at AJ when she also figured out the obvious. My deductive reasoning is slipping. AJ's returning to the Herald at about the same time. She parks and walks toward the front steps. Bill Wilson, her boss, happens to be stepping out at that moment, perhaps heading to a late lunch or something. AJ calls to him so he doesn't get too far. She wants to catch him before he goes. He turns and sees her. With a big smile, he waves and stops to wait for her. Just then a car stops right in front of him. A pair of Tommy guns appear out the window, and a rat-a-tat-tat follows like a loud typewriter. Riddled with red holes, Bill Wilson falls to the ground as the car speeds away. Tune in next time to hear what happens. If you would like to see visualizations of our episodes, check out our YouTube channel at the link in the description. You can also read books by the writer and game master of these stories by going to bandwagononline.com. Happy gaming, everybody!